0: What I wanted to do this Sunday is do something a little different for our our Christmas class uh, lesson. What I've done in the past is either, I think last year we did a a mock Jeopardy show, the Christmas challenge or something. Uh, The years before we kind of did uh, Christmas in history and looked at uh, where it all developed. If you want those classes, they're all online. But I wanted to do something a little different this year because I've been feeling a little reflective So I decided fresh off of our Old Testament studies, perhaps this year we could do the Incarnation in the Old Testament. And if we're going to do the Incarnation in the Old Testament, the best way I know to do it is to uh, sort of uh, go to the chapel. Here's what I'm talking about. If you'll notice the cover slide that we've started using in this class... If you look past New Testament survey and the incarnation in the Old Testament, you'll see the the white uh, milky cover over some scenes. And we can move those aside. And those scenes are paintings that are in the Old Testament part of our chapel. They're paintings that we got to to a friend to paint after a design scheme that we very carefully worked on. Our design scheme was built off the idea that the entrance, well, let's go back here. Um, the dome is that elevated part and inside the dome bef- going back into the Old Testament entrance for lack of a better word, you'll see this Greek written. It says "Palai ho theos lalesas tois patrasin in tois prophetais." Prophetis, excuse me what does that mean anybody it's Greek to me I hear from the front row very good palai long ago ho theos the God the only God the singular God long ago God la lesos, la 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 means to talk God spoke To the fathers, tois petrasen, in or by the prophets. Here's what it's saying. I took it from Hebrews 1 1. I'd love to say I came up with that, but I didn't. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. The core of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the revealed Word of God who has been born, lived, died, and resurrected to ensure for eternity fellowship between man and God. But because that's the core of the Bible, there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, both books written on each side, the bookends of that central event. And if that central event really starts with the incarnation, then I want us to look at the first bookend to that event. I want us to look at how long ago God spoke to the fathers. Even that statement, long ago, to me carries a lot of significance in my life. I'm a young man, 52. Feeling younger. There was a day when 52 was old. It's not old anymore, heavens. I'm looking at 62, 72, 82. They're all young. There was a day when 52 was old. But you look back and you start analyzing not just your history, but you analyze history back further and further and further. And you begin to ask these questions. Okay, how has the hand of God been moving? Not just in my life, but in history. We're 2,000 years since Jesus was born. And 2,000 years can seem like a long, long time to us as humans. And we can begin to say, did that really happen? And I want to tell you, yes, it did. And I want to tell you that we look at time so differently as people than God does. And it allowed the writer of Hebrews to write in the first century. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and God did. But God has never quit speaking. Just because the singular event of the incarnation happened at a specific point in history doesn't mean God hadn't planned for it and worked towards it for thousands of years and doesn't mean that God won't bring it to consummation thousands of years later. We live in our day and in our age and let God communicate to us through our day and our age. But we have the blessing, the privilege, the honor, and the challenge of seeing history and how God has revealed himself through those ages. So that's what I'd like to do. And we put this up in the chapel in that entry area part right there so that when you walk in the door you go into the Old Testament where God began speaking to man about Jesus Christ and he's on if if we, we did we only painted 30 Old Testament scenes in that ceiling But if we had painted all of them, by my own counting, I'd have needed over a thousand paintings to even begin to capture what God says about Jesus before he ever came. It's very profound. Let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that the earth was void and without form. And we know that over time, God put together the earth and all the things in it. Genesis 1.27 tells us, God said, let us make man in our image. And God created man, male and female. Because that word man there is talking about humanity. Humanity. God said, let us make man, male and female, in our image. And God did so. And God found it was very good. In Genesis 2, we get a a, a detailed accounting of the creation of Adam. And Adam, how many of you know the Hebrew word for man? Raise your hand, everybody. It's Adam. Adam means man in Hebrew. That's how he got his name. It doesn't mean cow. It doesn't mean monkey, it means man. So he's called man, Adam. God made man, and God didn't make man the way he made the rest of the animals. God breathed his spirit into man, and man became a living soul. And there's something unique about man, distinct from all the other animals. Man is made in the image of God. That does not mean God has a head, two arms, and two legs. That means that man has the morality, the moral fiber, the moral structure of God. Man is a creative being as God the Creator is. Man is a being of fellowship and community as God is a being inherent within himself of fellowship and community as the Trinity. That there are aspects of man, of God. Now, the word image, the Hebrew word for image, doesn't mean a mirror image. It means kind of a shadowy image. We're not mini-gods, M-I-N-I. We're not little gods. There's all the difference in the world between God and man. But we do bear some of his image. We do have a shadowy resemblance in some ways, to God. That's how we were made. So, God made man with an ability to commune and to fellowship with God. God placed man in a garden. He gave man all he could do to eat, uh, he, uh, all he could have to eat. He gave man everything that he needed. He gave him purpose. He said, Take care of the garden. And man was there, but man wasn't complete. Man needed more community. Beyond simply God, there was something else that man needed on earth to do man's work on earth. He needed a helper. So God calls all of the animals to man and says, look around for your helper. And man gives names to each animal. And the power to name is an is a awesome power in Old Testament times. Jesus exhibited great power when he changed people's names. So God says to Adam, find your helper. Adam goes through all the animals. He names them all. But not one is an answer for what's missing in Adam's life. And the reason why is clear. It's because man is made for fellowship with God in God's image. And nothing less than an image bearer of God can be the helpmate. Or the companion. Or the fellowship Unity with Adam. So that's, animals aren't the answer. So what happens? God builds, the Hebrew word God forms woman from the rib of man. It's the word for build. Like building a house. Causes a deep sleep to fall over Adam. And God builds woman. And when woman is, is uh, Adam wakes up, what a present. You know, he wakes up, he's got woman there. And life is now really, really good. But it's, it's not unlimited. Man is not God. God has set up rules around man because man is man and God is God. And so among the rules is don't eat of that tree. Now, we don't know what the tree looked like. We know that there was something alluring about it. But we painted the fruit of the tree as teardrops because C.S. Lewis brought out that idea that, that whatever that fruit was, it may have been beautiful, but it also caused sorrow. There's a, a melancholy beauty to it. So we use teardrops. And woman, she, she is tempted by the, the evil one. And she takes of that fruit and she eats it. She sins. She gives to Adam, and Adam sins. Now, if you think about it this way, if you think about God being something that's very real, and and, uh, we never want to put a box around God, but the idea is that God does have defining characteristics. He is who he is. One of the things that he is is truth. One of the things he is is life. One of the things he is is uh, 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 light. And he is a moral God. And as long as man, who's made in his image, lives in that truth and that life and that light and that morality, man can live with God. But there are things that are ungodly, are ungod. There is lie. There is death. There is darkness. And there is sin. And when man made the choice to sin, man made a very deliberate choice that left the fellowship of God. And we see it, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we see it in the paintings and we see it in the Bible, when God has to curse man. God says, You have sinned, and the result of your sin is dot, 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 and man is cursed. And, and and what happens in this process is God doesn't simply curse man, but if you'll see in the painting, you can see the serpent and Adam and Eve leaving the garden with the angel protecting the gates and, and the, the they're sent out of the garden. They're not allowed to reapproach the tree of life. Heaven forbid we should live forever as sinful people. But they are kicked out of the garden. You'll notice in the painting the Bethlehem star. That's because this is the first place in the Bible where scholars readily agree there's a prophetic promise of a coming Messiah. God says that from the seed of woman will come one who will crush the head of the tempter. And that's the first promise. And so we see from the seed of woman is going to be the one who conquers Satan and restores fellowship between God and man. And that's the story of the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful story as we walk through it. But here's our, 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 so far make sure we're all on the same page. People are made for fellowship with God, but sin made us non fellowshipable That's not a word, but it is a concept. Sin made us non fellowshipable So God says, I'm going to fix the problem and I'll do it through woman and her offspring. The seed of woman. Here's the way Paul said it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he goes on to say in Romans 5 that that, uh, we have a righteousness and a life that's come through all in Christ. Or look at how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it this way. The first Adam became a living being. And that's a quote out of Genesis. God breathed into him the spirit of life and he became a living being. The last Adam, and the last Adam is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth. He was a man of dust. The second man's from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man in heaven. God's image will be restored in us. So we see in Adam not only our sin, but we see a picture and a promise of... ...of a coming Messiah. Where do we go from here? Paul says... ...if many died through the one man's trespass... ...much more have the grace of God... ...and the free gift... ...by the grace... ...of that one man, Jesus Christ... ...abounded for many. And so we have the curses and promises. Now if we scoot over... ...we see that God continues to work... ...and to teach. We have the story of Noah... It's not surprising if I'm the the tempter and I find out through the seed of woman is going to come the one who's going to crush me. I will do everything in my power to destroy the seed of woman. And Satan works voraciously and overtime and you see evil all over the place. And then you get to the point where God says, I'm going to destroy all of mankind except for his remnant, which is Noah. Noah and his family are righteous people. And God causes a water to separate them from all of the evil of the world. And they are saved through that water. And it's a wonderful picture image that Peter explains this way. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared... ...in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And that is the way baptism, he says corresponds to this baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ we see in the picture of noah and the flood god will rescue his people his people that he's declared righteous he will rescue them and the waters of baptism separate his people from the rest of the world and show them separate and distinct. Those waters that represent the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And so we have these pictures in the Old Testament that continue to help us define what's coming. Abram. There's a man named Abram, a descendant of Noah. A man named Abram who lives in Ur of the Chaldees. And in, he's called out of Ur by God. Abram, in the process of his life, has an opportunity to go rescue some folks. And when he rescues them, he's coming back and he encounters this king named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a king of Salem. That's an old name for Jerusalem. Salem means peace. Jerusalem means new peace. Or or rebuilt peace or something. So... so. Uh, uh, you've got this man, Abram goes out to meet him. Here's the picture. Abram goes out to meet this Gentile man who's also a priest of Yahweh Most High. Abram goes out to meet him. The priest offers the communion elements of, of bread and wine and Abram gives a tithe to the priest, Melchizedek. Now the Psalms, Psalm 110 says that the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order, or in the same way as Melchizedek. So what can we say about Melchizedek for a moment? Well, we can say a couple of things. He's the king of peace. He's a priest. He's the king of righteousness. So these are all things that the Old Testament tells us we'll see in the Messiah. So now we're looking for a Messiah who will be the king or prince of peace who will be a priest that will go before God on behalf of the sins of the people. We will see a king of righteousness, a man in whom there is no sin. We'll see one that when Abraham gave his service and his obeisance and his tithe to Melchizedek, it wasn't just Abraham, but in a cultural sense, it's all of his offspring. Because all of his offspring are contained within his genetic profile. Or his seed, to use the biblical term. So when Abraham bows before Melchizedek, and Melchizedek's the Messiah, we know the Messiah is going to be greater than Abraham. The Old Testament doesn't tell us how Melchizedek got started, where he came from, anything about him, how he died. In the same way where Jesus, the Messiah, won't have a beginning or an end to his priesthood. He'll be a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. He's without a real father and mother. In the normal sense. The pre-existent Jesus. Jesus didn't. Christ did not just occur because of Mary. Mary was the vessel through whom Christ was incarnated. Christ pre-existed Mary. And so uh, communion, tithes, all of these are foreshadowed here. Found in Psalm 110, explained in Hebrews 7 as fulfilled in Jesus. It's a wonderful story. What else do we have in the Old Testament? we keep going through the pictures. Abram, Sarah, and three guests. God now at this point said, you remember, he said the prophecy is going to come through or the promise is going to come through the seed of woman. He's further defined it and said, Abram, it's coming through you and Sarah. You and Sarah will bear a child, and through your offspring, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Yours is the chosen offspring. You are the chosen people for the Messiah to come forth and conquer and fix the problem of sin. And Abram's excited about that. The problem is he's getting old, and he doesn't have a kid. Now, culturally, what people would do back then, if the wife was unable to bear a child, she would get one of her servants to be a surrogate. And that's what Sarah does. She gets Hagar to be a surrogate. Hagar bears the child Ishmael. God says, no, 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 no. And he sends three visitors. And those three visitors come in. And they say to Abram, and Sarah's eavesdropping, she hears it. They say, you're going to have a baby through Sarah. Well, Sarah's 99. She laughs. I would cry. But she laughs. God says, name him Isaac. Kind of means she laughs. So what happens? Sure enough, they have a child. Now, they had had a child legally through the surrogate. But this is a real child that God says the promise goes through. Paul says it this way. It's written, Abraham had two sons, one by the surrogate, the slave woman, one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the woman, the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. That's the promised child. That's the child through whom the Messiah would come. And so the the focus, the, the prophecies start getting more specific. It's coming through Abraham, Sarah... They have their child Isaac. Now when Isaac's growing up some and he's weaned, Abraham says, come on, we are got to go sacrifice. And Abraham says this because God has told Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham out of faith does this, goes to do this, I should say. As they're going, they, they, they take the mules, they've got the firewood, everything else. They leave the servants with the mules. They go up on Mount uh, Moriah and, and Abraham is, is uh, carrying the wood and the sun. And they've got the tinder box and they've got the knife. And, and the son says, okay, dad, we've got everything but the sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? Look at some of the words in this story. God says, take your son, your only son, to be sacrificed. Abraham says to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide for himself. These are very prophetic statements, and they're statements that turn true. Hebrews tells us that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham was confident that God was going to bring him the promise through Isaac. And so if God says sacrifice him, God's going to raise him from the dead. Now God stops the sacrifice. But all of those things are foreshadowings of what is to come. There will be an only begotten son. And it will be a son who will be sacrificed for the promise. But it will be God providing this lamb for himself. And it will be one that God is able to raise from the dead. And so the, the vision starts getting clearer through these prophecies in the Old Testament. We can keep on going. We're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Jacob's ladder. Isaac has two sons Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out first, so he's supposed to be the oldest. Jacob comes out second. Jacob is not a. Jacob is kind of a tricky fella, he's, a, 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 he's deceitful. He's not very honest. He's cunning. He's uh, he's a good chess player. He's very deliberate, and he starts figuring out how to maneuver himself into a position of power. And he lies to his dad. And he cheats his brother. And he tries and tries and tries. The problem is, he gets figured out. And his brother says, I'm going to kill him. So, Jacob's got to do something. Jacob flees. For all of his maneuverings. For all of his... And I'm sure he justified it in his conscience. Hey, I'm furthering the promise of God. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't further the promise of God by doing wrong. And so Jacob has to flee. And while he's running to keep himself from getting killed by his brother, he stops. And he stops in this place and he lays down and he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. And in the dream, there's this stairway. And the stairway Yes, that's it. There's a stairway to heaven. And, and, and the, the, the Hebrew word's translated ladder, but it's one of these rare words in the Bible. That's not what it is, really. They just don't have a good word to translate it. It's kind of more like a stairway, but whatever it was. He sees this thing that stretches from heaven to earth, and angels are ascending and descending on it. And he says, this must be the door to God's house. I'm going to take this pillar I'm sleeping on. I'm going to erect it here. We'll call this Beth El, house of God. This must be where he lives. And he erects it. And God starts to work in his life. This is a man that God... Look, the cheat, lying cheater, conniving cheater, Jacob, gets lied, connived, and cheated by his own uncle, his father-in-law. He gets his just desserts. He starts growing up. He finally gets to go back. He wrestles with an angel. There's lots of the story involved. But God shapes Jacob into the man Jacob needs to be as the man of promise. But even in this, Jacob thought, remember God spoke long ago to our fathers. He spoke of Jesus to the fathers through the prophets. Here's one of the fathers who has this dream. What's the real staircase that connects heaven to earth? What is the real door that enables men and God to fellowship and commune? It's no simple wooden ladder or stone staircase. It is what Jesus said to Nathanael. That Nathanael would live to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder unto heaven he is the stairway to heaven it is jesus alone that will link god and man again and that's the picture we get out of jacob's ladder well what else do we have we move to exodus and we get israel in bondage in exodus and the entire moses story is laden with symbolism of the bondage that we have with sin We have this bondage relationship with sin where sin is our master and plays the tune and commands we dance. And that's a sin that just by law of of God leads nowhere but to death. It's what J.B. Phillips called the vicious spiral of sin because it's a vortex that you're caught in and you can't escape from. And God's people for 430 years are in Egypt. 430 years. Think of it this way. If you didn't have a very clear message from God for 430 years, would you begin to doubt whether he was there and what he was doing? We lose track of that because it's a couple of verses in the Bible. But 430 years is a long time to go. But God had not fallen asleep and he had not forgotten his promise. He's going to do it the way he said he's going to do it. And he's going to do it when he says he's going to do it. So Israel's in bondage. Moses, see the Israelites are breeding like rabbits. So the Pharaoh says we've got to do something about it. Let's just kill all the boys. Kill the boy infants, don't let him live, and everything will be fine. So this woman has a boy. He's going to get killed. What does she do? She builds a little basket for him, an ark, and puts him in it. Puts it in the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter fishes him out of the Nile. Says, baby, cool, got one. Needs a nurse, wet nurse. Uh, where's a Hebrew woman who could be a wet nurse? Uh, my mom can. Who's your mom? Uh, the baby's mom. Oh, okay, sounds good. Well, I didn't say that, but. So Moses' mother gets to nurse Moses. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house learning how to read, learning how to write, learning how to build, learning military strategy, learning all the things he would need to know to lead God's people, learning laws, learning culture. He learns everything, but he grows up with a heart for his country, uh, for his people, for his family. And so when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, Moses goes crazy. And he kills the Egyptian. Then a couple of Hebrew slaves rat him out. And so now Moses is on the run from Pharaoh. He goes out into the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, he finds this wonderful young lady. He marries her. And Moses is going to think, he thinks, live out his days as a shepherd in the wilderness. But he's on this mountain of Sinai when he sees a bush that's burning but not being consumed. He goes over to it. And he hears this voice, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. I want you to go back and I've heard the cries of my people. I'm, it's time, it's time. Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses says we've got two problems. Number one, I can't do this. And number two, everybody's going to want to know who you are. And God says, my name is Yahweh, we think. We don't know how it's pronounced because it's not something that the Jews would pronounce. There's a, a Hebrew guy named Anson Rainey who said when he gets to heaven, the first thing he's going to do is ask God, uh, so how do you say your name? Um, I don't know if he will or not, but um, uh, God, uh, God says, Moses, I am who I am. You tell him Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who made the promise, who's going to fix all of this through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You go tell them that, God. And Moses whines, oh, I can't do it. God says, I'll do it through your staff then instead of you. Don't worry about it. Staff as in his stick, not his, uh, you know, I, I don't know that he rolled deep, but not his, you know, entourage. His... Anyway, God sends him back, so he goes back. Well, it's this yes, no, yes, no, yes, no thing with Pharaoh about letting the people go as God would continue to curse, 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 curse until the tenth and final curse where God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt. Death will come, but not to God's chosen people if God's chosen people will do what God tells them to do. What does God tell them to do? Now, think about this as a Christian and what we know now. They didn't know this, but think about it. God says, take a... All right, here, here, let's do it this way. People are in bondage, okay? God says, I'm going to kill the firstborn. And the only way to avoid it is to take the blood of a male lamb that's perfect, without blemish, kill it, eat the flesh... Take the blood and paint it on your door. But don't just go there and go, X marks the spot. Paint it on the lintel and paint it on the post. So you've just painted a cross. You've painted a cross. Let's look at the painting here. You've painted a cross on the door. And God said, when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb on the cross... On your door. He will pass over your house. And he will bring you out of that house. And he will bring you into the promised land. This is the prophetic word of God about Jesus to the people. And things aren't going. It it, it works. And Pharaoh sends them out. Not only that. But all the other Egyptians are so ready to get rid of them. They're paying them to leave. Here, go faster. Here's some gold. They plundered the Egyptians. They leave. Well, Pharaoh's mourning turns to anger. And he galvanizes his army and his charioteers and off goes chasing the Israelites. The Israelites get confronted by the Dead Sea, or Reed Sea, excuse me, and and they're in front of the Reed Sea. They, they, they don't know what to do because Pharaoh's cut off their escape. They're scared to death. They're petrified. They're grumbling, mumbling. Why'd you lead us out here to die? Moses says, oh, just be quiet and watch the hand of God. And just as, a, as, as a, through the dead waters of the Dead Sea, they pass out of bondage into the Promised Land. You can't get a clearer picture of baptism than that. And so they pass into the wilderness. Now what happens when they get into the wilderness? Well, they're not fit for it. So they need bread every day. Who provides the bread? God does. Who provides the water? God does. And Jesus says that I am the bread of life. That I am the living water. All of those, the sustenance of people... In their journey on this world into the promised land of God is a journey sustained daily through nourishment by Jesus. Without Jesus, nobody makes it. And Jesus is needed every day. They didn't, like, get manna for a year. They got manna daily. Jesus is our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's what we have. God tells Moses, he says, build a tabernacle. I want you to build it exactly like this. It's extremely important. You get all of the details right. So, for example, the tabernacle's got the courts, but it's got a holy place where the priests will serve. And then there's this holy of holies, the kadosh of the kadosh, the, the, the holiest of holies. An inner place where it's so holy, only the high priest can go. He only goes in on a certain day of the year to atone for the sins of the people. It's separated by a curtain from the holiest, uh, from the holy places. So you've got this holiest of holies, and in it is a chest or an ark—you call it either one—and the chest inside of it has got the law. But on top of it, it's got a throne. And that throne is made out of angels' wings, cherubim. And it's called the mercy seat. The lid to the ark is a throne. And God says, I'm not going to meet you down under the seat where the law is. I'm going to meet you on a seat of mercy. And it's on that seat of mercy that once a year the high priest would come in with the atoning sacrifice for the people and put the blood on the mercy seat. Because that's where the blood of the Lamb is. And that's the requirement, where God will meet his people. There's a Greek word, hilasterion. It means propitiation. It's also the word used to translate mercy seat in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And so here it is. God says, you build it just like this because this is important. It's important that the people have this picture. Because this is what's, this is the promise. I'm not just telling you it's coming through the seed of Abraham. I'm telling you how it's coming. That I will meet you on a seat of mercy where the blood of the atoning lamb has been slain and spread out. That's the meeting place of God and humanity. And so the tabernacle gets built. Now John tells us in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You say, well, that's not my translation. My translation says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is a good English word that spell check will accept. But the Greek word means pitched its tent or tabernacled. It's the Greek word for the Old Testament, tabernacle, being constructed. So when Jesus comes, Jesus is the tabernacle. It is Jesus who is the meeting place of God and man. Jesus came and tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us, the word. And these are all images and prophetic statements and promises about the coming Messiah. Now, the law is there. The law serves a purpose. Moses goes up on the mountains, he gets Ten Commandments, but he gets even more law than that. The law helps govern society and structure society and it helps people know what to do. But Paul points out very pointedly in Galatians, that the law was also our guardian until Christ came. The law was our custodian. The Greek word for that uh, the, is, is a, a tutor. The law was what taught us our manners and took us to Jesus. The law is, is, is important. It's the law. How do you know who Jesus is? One way you know is he's the one who kept the law perfectly. How do you know you need Jesus? How do you know you're a sinner? Because the law shows you you're a sinner. If you know what God requires and you don't do it yourself, you need Jesus. That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler. He says, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to be saved? You tell me what I can do to be saved. God says, oh, just keep the law, be perfect, got it, go. He says, well, I've already done that. And if I were Jesus, I'd have just laughed at him and said, you're an idiot. But Jesus has tact. Jesus says, oh, good, you you keep the law perfectly. That's fantastic. Go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor, i.e., go love your neighbor as yourself. And man goes away sorrowful because he's got a lot and he doesn't keep the law. What he should have done is gone to Jesus and not said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Instead, he should have said, Jesus, can you help me? I can't get there. I need you. Explain it to me. Well, the law comes. Ultimately, the people of Israel get brought into the promised land, and the promised land is delivered to them. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a role in it. That doesn't mean they're not involved. They're told to do what God tells them to do. They march around Jericho seven times, seven days. They blow the horns, and the wall comes down. The people have a role in it, God makes clear what their role is, but it's God who brings them into the promised land. The God who was leading them every step along the way. A cloud of, of uh, uh, fire by night and a cloud by day. A pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God led them every step of the way. Oh, there's a period of disobedience. There's the wilderness wanderings. We don't have time for that. We've got to keep going. I want to get to the, the, the third set of vignettes. So after they take over the promised land, they live under judges. They don't really have a king. God's supposed to be their king. But there are judges. And they live tribally. And there is a small, 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 little, little, little town. I'm talking a couple hundred people. Very, 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 very small. Called Bethlehem. It's not the kind of town anybody really would have heard of. It's nothing. It's not like... Lubbock. I mean, it's not the hub of the plains. It's just, it's just a small little place like Amarillo. And, and nobody's really, it's, it's just insignificant. But there's a marvelous story that happens there. There's a woman named Naomi who's married to a man whose name means my God is king, Elimelech. And Elimelech and, and Naomi have two sons. And a famine hits the land. So they leave the mountainous area and they go east to Moab. And while there, the two sons marry Moabite women. Tisk, tisk. Not really supposed to do that, but it looks like those Moabite women, at least one of them, was converted. She was a Jewish Moabite woman. She believed in Yahweh. Well, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and both of the fellows' sons died leaving Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. She tells the daughter-in-laws, y'all go marry your own men in your own place. I'm going to head back home. I've got to go back home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And one of the daughters in law says, I love you, I'm sorry, uh, may life be good to you. But the other one, Ruth, says, oh, don't urge me to go. Wherever you go, that's where you'll find me. Your people, they'll be my people. Your God, he'll be my God. Where you are, die and buried, that's where I'll be buried. And Ruth goes back. So they get back there, and now all of a sudden, something's got to be done with Ruth. So what are they going to do? Well, Ruth finds this fellow named Boaz, who's a rich landowner, and she starts gathering wheat in his field. And Boaz happens to be a relative who's in a position to be able to buy back the land and redeem it, and as part of that, marry Ruth. It's a delightful love story. I don't have time to go into detail with it. Dale Hearn taught a class on it. And here you can listen to it on the internet. It's it's great. But the bottom line is, is Ruth and Boaz ultimately get married. And they have a kid. And that kid has another kid, a grandson named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And David is the shepherd boy who grows up to be king. And now God gets more specific. And he says, this promise that's coming through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, this promise of the sacrifice, this son that I'm going to sacrifice for the people, this blood that's going to be on the mercy seat, this propitiation for sin, the penalty that's paid for the sin of people, it's going to come through David. And this man is going to be king forever. This man who's going to be a priest Who's going to be a prince of peace. This man will also be a king forever. And sit on David's throne. Till the end of days. Past the end of days. So we have that. And Jesus is the man. He says I am the good shepherd. And I will lay down my life for the sheep. Because that's what he does. Well David dies. But his son Solomon gets the next promise. Solomon's the one who builds the temple. They're no longer using the pack it up tent tabernacle. They build a temple, and it's built a little bit differently than the tabernacle, but it does retain the holy of holies separated from the holy place. It does retain the ark, the chest of the covenant. It does retain the temple sacrifices, the sacrifices that were set up. And all of this is done because that's the place where God is going to meet the people. Now don't get me wrong, God's not trapped there. As Solomon says, you don't really live here. But it's the kind of thing where, like Paul says later, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. God meets right there. And we have this image of what it means. Well, while the kings, good kings come, good kings go. Bad kings come, bad kings go. God continues to speak through the prophets. He's got the prophet Elijah. who Elijah performs miracles. He raises the dead. But Elijah pronounces judgment and the coming Messiah. It's Elijah who Malachi 4 says will return. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. Jesus says that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as Elijah, doing doing God's bidding to, to announce and declare judgment upon sin, repentance. Just as the ministry of Elijah did. There's more you can read about the baptism of Naaman in the Jordan, which precedes the baptism of John the Baptist as well. Something special about this water, Naaman says. Why should I dip in it seven times to be cured of my leprosy? And the response is, because God said to And he does, and he is. Then there's this story of Jonah, a most unusual story. What's it doing in there? Jonah's told to go evangelize the Gentiles. He don't want to do that. So what happens? Before he evangelizes the Gentiles, he gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish, where he stays three days and three nights before he gets puked out onto the land. Sorry, that's probably not a church word. Before he's uh, regurgitated out onto the land. Now, if you read the Hebrew, they're using words about death. He descended to Sheol. He was dead for three days and three nights, in a sense. What does that have to do with anything in the Old Testament? What sense does that even make in the Old Testament ideas? Do you really think the Hebrews were real excited about evangelizing the Assyrians who wiped out ten tribes of northern Israel? It's in there as a prophetic word because long ago God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. And Jesus was able to say, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All of this is what it is. Then you reach Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, in Isaiah 6, gets caught up into heaven and he sees the Lord seated on his throne, and the train of his glory fills the temple. And there's smoke and there are angels flying around him, chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the reaction of Isaiah the prophet is, Woe is me! For I am an unclean man, and I live in the midst of unclean people, and I have seen the face of God. I'm dead and God says, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Through the prophets, we read that God has his own sacrificial altar with a sacrifice on it, which is going to atone for the sins of the people. It's on every page. Daniel in the lion's den, he lives through it out of faith to God. And God uses Daniel to talk about the coming of the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of the Almighty and will come with the angels in glory and whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and his dominion will never end. And you get these words of prophecy over and over and over. And you get to Isaiah chapter 53. uh, uh, Ezekiel, Valley of Dry Bones. We're running out of time. Isaiah chapter 53. And in Isaiah chapter 53, you read one of the most profound statements about Jesus. When I was in high school, a Jewish fellow uh, who was really struggling with uh, uh, whether or not to accept the Lord. And I had a friend who, who was, was relating this story to me. And he said, You know, and so I read him from Isaiah 53. And I said, how did it go over? And he said, well, I read Isaiah 53, and he said, well, I don't believe any of that. I've told you, I only believe the Old Testament. And he said, and and I said, what? He says, yeah, he didn't, I didn't tell him I was reading from the Old Testament. He just thought I was reading from the New Testament. Because it so clearly reads about Jesus. I mean, I'm not talking, hey, that could be about Jesus. You can't read Isaiah 53 and think it's anything other than Jesus unless you're doing Olympic somersaults in your brain. You've the gymnastics to get around that being around Jesus are are are, are, are Olympic quality. Hey, it talks about the suffering servant who will who's not beautiful by man's standards, but who will take on the sins of the world and like a lamb will be led to the slaughter, but won't fight against it, won't shout out against it. And by his stripes will be healed and by his iniquities will be made whole and he will be the sacrifice that God has to fix the problem and he'll be a servant and that's the kind of king he's going to be and that's the kind of priest he's going to be. Is it any wonder... Then, when we put those images together. That what we're left with. Is a Messiah who comes. And when he comes. He comes meek and lowly. In an animal's manger. Born where he was going to be born. A child of Bethlehem. David's ancestry town. Linked up. To every prophecy there is. It's an amazing incarnation story that's in the Old Testament. And I hope during this season, you'll have a chance to share that with someone. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for loving us enough to fix the problem. Problem is too mild a word. To bridge heaven and earth, to redeem in love your people, so that we can live and serve in your kingdom, worshiping you in fellowship together through eternity. We are eternally grateful through the blood of Jesus. Amen.